For this week's episode, I decided to cover three unsolved missing persons cases from 1982, 1987, and 1991. I felt it was important to discuss the disappearances of Toya Katrina Hill, Tiffany Michelle Goines, and Melody McCoy, because there might be a chance that someone listening knows something and that there is an opportunity that one of these cases, or even all three, can be solved. Hi, I'm your host Gigi, and this is Noir True Crime Files. I came across the three cases for this week's episode some time ago when I was researching for another case or just randomly reading up on true crime like I normally do. Each case in this week's episode takes place in the state of Maryland, where I'm also from, so I definitely felt obligated to cover them. Not only had I never heard about these cases before, but each case involves a young black girl who went missing until this day no one has any idea what happened to them. I'll be discussing each case in chronological order, so Toya's case will be first. For my research of all three cases, I used the Charlie Project, several threads from Web Sleuths, articles in the Baltimore Sun, the Doe Project, and the Washington Post. All sources will be linked in the show notes. Toya Katrina Hill was born on August 24, 1973 in Baltimore, Maryland, and lived with her mother, Annette Stanley, her sister, and two brothers. At the time of her disappearance, Toya and her family lived in the Lafayette Homes, which was a public housing project on the 200th block of South Spring Street, and she attended City Spring Elementary School, where she was in the third grade. According to her family, Toya was well-behaved, but a quiet child who won awards in school for her perfect attendance and participation in class activities. On Wednesday, March 24, 1982, Annette had an appointment for her wedding dress fitting, so she left home at 6.15 p.m. Her wedding was a few days away, and Toya was supposed to be the flower girl during the ceremony. Earlier that afternoon, Annette had given Toya a snack and allowed her to go outside to play in the courtyard with her friends. After Annette left, however, Toya reportedly told her sister she was going to walk to the grocery store, which was two blocks away, so she could buy candy, but she knew she was not allowed to do that. Annette had made it very clear in the past that Toya could not walk to the store alone, and this would be the first time that Toya would break one of her mother's rules. Toya left the apartment on South Spring Street and walked to the store, which was located on Go and South Caroline Street. Witnesses say that Toya was seen speaking to her mother's ex-boyfriend, Wayne D. Martin Sr., and one of his friends. 
Different reports state that Toya never made it to the store, so I'm assuming that means she never actually went inside after making contact with her mother's ex-boyfriend. This interaction is the last known sighting of Toya, and she has not been seen or heard from since. Annette returned home that evening at 7.30 p.m. and discovered that Toya was not there and reported her missing. Police would go on to interview Wayne Martin and his friend, but they were eventually cleared of wrongdoing. During their investigation into Toya's disappearance, Baltimore police also interviewed about 150 other people, but those interviews were also unsuccessful. Although her ex had been cleared, Annette still felt like he knew where Toya was and was keeping her, hoping that Annette would call off her wedding. Annette went ahead with her wedding the following Saturday after Toya's disappearance and married a man named John Poindexter. Annette was thinking and hoping that Wayne would bring Toya back once he saw that she'd gone through with the marriage, but she was reportedly so upset during the ceremony that she broke down and refused to open any of her wedding gifts. After Toya still had not returned home, Annette called Wayne's house repeatedly, questioning him about her daughter's whereabouts, but he would continue to say that he knew nothing about Toya's disappearance and didn't know what happened to her. According to a 2011 article in the Baltimore Sun, written by Jean Marbella, Annette says that for a year after Toya went missing, she would continue to set a place at the dining room table for her until she realized how much it was affecting her other children. In the article, Annette says that setting the table for Toya was just a painful reminder of her absence for the other children and that she even found photos of Toya under their pillows. Annette eventually divorced her husband in 1984, realizing that she'd only gone through with the marriage to spite Wayne. As years went by, Annette began to struggle between believing that Toya was still alive somewhere and not able to come home, or the unimaginable, that someone had hurt her. Whenever Annette would hear news of a missing child being found, she couldn't help but feel angry that her own child had still not returned home, but her feelings would eventually change to happiness for that child's parents. In an interesting turn of events, Annette would rekindle her relationship with the same man she suspected of taking Toya, Wayne Martin. The couple even ended up being married for some time. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to locate their marriage certificate to verify what year this occurred. However, I was able to find that their divorce was finalized in 2012. Annette claims that she left Wayne a few months after they got back together, but I found a couple of recorded domestic violence incidents between them, with Wayne being the aggressor. Aside from being abusive, Wayne also had a history with drugs, either for possession or distribution. Wayne is now dead, and according to Marbella's article, Annette is now remarried to someone else. Although Annette has not given up hope that one day Toya will be found, she had Toya legally declared dead on July 30, 1990. Toya is still considered a missing person, and this March will make 38 years since her disappearance. At the time she went missing, Toya was 8 years old, 4 feet tall, 80 pounds, with black hair and brown eyes. If she is still alive today, she would be 46 years old. Some reports state that they weren't sure what Toya had on when she went missing, but according to the Charlie Project, she had on a blue jacket, a blue and orange striped top, and blue jeans. Toya wore glasses, but she did not have them on the day she left home. 
She also had a chipped front tooth and a deep dimple in her left cheek. Anyone with information on Toya Katrina Hill's whereabouts is encouraged to contact Charles McCauley of the Baltimore Police Department at 410-396-2284. Toya's case number is 822C47385. Tiffany Michelle Goines was born on December 22, 1974, and at the time of her disappearance, she lived with her mother Betty in Frederick, Maryland at the John Hansen Apartments on North Bentz Street. Tiffany was a 12-year-old sixth grader at Governor Thomas Johnson Middle School and was described as a happy girl who loved to help people and hang out with her friends. A few weeks before her 13th birthday, on December 5, 1987, Betty had allowed for Tiffany to run errands for her neighbors, which was something she commonly did. These errands typically consisted of her going to the store and paying her neighbors' bills, and they would pay her for helping them out. This was most likely the case when she left home that day. When Tiffany returned home, she grabbed a jacket and told her mom she was going to her friend's house and left out again. Betty says she remembers telling Tiffany to be careful, but that would be the last time she would see or speak to her daughter. Tiffany should have come back home by 5 p.m. for dinner, but by 9 p.m. it was dark out and a cold rain had started to fall. There was no sign of Tiffany and Betty knew then that something wasn't right. Betty started calling around to any of Tiffany's friends that she could think of, but they all told her they either hadn't seen Tiffany or that Tiffany had left to go home. Betty and other family members began riding around looking for Tiffany, shouting her name, hoping to find her. They continued their search into the morning, and after they weren't able to find her, they went to the police station to report her missing. Betty was informed by an officer at the station that Tiffany had to be missing for 24 hours before a report could be filed, and as we all know, precious time is lost when you're told to wait when a loved one goes missing. In a 2012 Washington Post article, Anquanette Crosby of TheRoot.com spoke with Betty and Tiffany's uncle, William Goins. William didn't hold back his criticism of how Frederick police handled Tiffany's case or the lack of media attention her case received. He firmly believed that because Tiffany lived in a predominantly black neighborhood at the time, that her case simply wasn't important enough to cover. He said, quote, at the time, we didn't have the Amber Alert, but in our neighborhood, it was always this 24 to 48 hour wait before law enforcement would come and investigate our kids, end quote. A year after Tiffany's disappearance, a neighbor confessed to Betty that they saw Tiffany get into a red convertible the day she disappeared. When Betty asked them why they didn't say anything sooner, they told her it's because they thought she already knew about it. Tiffany's Charlie Project profile does state that there's a confusion on whether she got into a red convertible or a light blue two-door Chevrolet Impala and the Impala's license plate number began with a GH and ended in the number 22. Till this day, the red convertible and the Impala have not been found. 
As years went by, Betty continued to hold out hope that Tiffany would come home. She slept in the living room for years, hoping that Tiffany would one day knock on the door, and she also held on to birthday gifts. The apartments where Tiffany and Betty once lived were torn down in 2005, but Betty does still live in Maryland and believes that Tiffany is alive and will be found one day. It's been 33 years since Tiffany's disappearance. Unfortunately, there haven't been any updates, suspects, or sightings of her. Tiffany's case remains open and is one of the longest missing persons cases in Frederick, Maryland. FPD claims that they constantly update Tiffany's file and have a detective assigned to her case. If Tiffany is still alive, she would be 45 years old. At the time she went missing, she was five foot tall, 78 pounds with brown eyes and her hair was in shoulder length braids. Tiffany had a healed fractured finger on her left hand and her left eye turned inward. She wore large brown glasses and was wearing a white sweatshirt with a picture on the front, brown gloves, a white nylon coat, blue cotton pants, a white belt, white socks, and white sneakers with no laces. Anyone with information on Tiffany Michelle Goins' whereabouts should contact the Frederick Police Department at 301-600-2100. Her case number is 87 cr 24392. Melody McCoy was born on October 1st, 1979, and lived with her mother Shirley in West Baltimore on the 300th block of North Mount Street. Melody was 12 years old and a sixth grader at Holland Park Elementary School and was described by a family friend named Queenie Gregory in a 1991 Baltimore Sun article as a brilliant girl who loved school and was well behaved. On December 1st, 1991, Shirley allowed Melody to attend a sleepover at a friend's house who lived on the 300th block of Fremont Avenue in a high-rise building called Lexington Terrace. Melody left for her friend's house and took her bike with her. The last reported sighting of Melody was at 7 p.m. that evening. When Melody's friend woke up the next morning, she didn't see Melody, but her bike was still there and it had a flat tire. Melody's friend also realized that Melody's coat was still in the apartment and that the coat of a boy who also lived in the apartment was gone. The assumption is that Melody left with that coat on. No one in the apartment saw Melody leave that night. When Shirley had not heard from Melody, she figured she'd gone to an aunt's house, which is something that she typically did. But after getting in contact with that aunt and finding out that Melody was not there, Shirley reported Melody missing at 12.30 p.m. on December 3, 1991. Foul play was not initially suspected in Melody's case, but eventually Baltimore police began to suspect that Melody had been abducted. In Melody's web sleuths thread, a user named Blair explained that the area that Melody lived in at the time was a very high crime area and the building in particular, Lexington Terrace, where she was last seen, was well known to have a lot of drug activity. The building was later demolished in 1996. 
This may or may not be related to her case, but I think it's important to mention. So thank you to Blair for sharing that information. There hasn't been any information or updates in Melody's case over the years. Her disappearance does draw comparisons to Toya Hills because they were both young black girls from Baltimore. Maybe there was a serial abductor or pedophile in the area. Who knows? I want to believe that Baltimore police may have already thought about this possibility and looked into it. Melody has been missing now for 29 years. If she is still alive, she would be 40 years old. When she was last seen, she was 5 feet tall, 100 pounds, with brown shoulder-length hair, brown eyes, and a mole on her right cheek. Melody was last seen wearing a waist-length sky-blue coat that had puffy sleeves, a blue shirt, and blue jeans. Melody also had on yellow socks and white tennis shoes, or they could have been red Reeboks. If you have information on Melody's whereabouts, please contact Detective Lieutenant Terrence McLarney of the Baltimore Police Department at 443-263-2220. Her case number is 917-L04683. As far as theories go, I do feel like Wayne Martin could have known more about what happened to Toya Hill. With his violent record and his abusive relationship with Toya's mother, it's hard to completely rule him out. Someone else could have had something to do with Toya's disappearance, but no other persons of interest or questionable characters were ever mentioned during my research in her case. In Tiffany's case, she was definitely taken advantage of. Not to say that none of the girls discussed weren't taken advantage of, but Tiffany was running errands for her neighbors, meaning they trusted her and she trusted them. Her neighborhood was described as close-knit, meaning everybody most likely knew each other. I believe someone studied her movements, possibly groomed her, and convinced her to get into their car the day she went missing. Was someone's family member in town visiting? Was there a couch surfer hanging around? Was there a drifter who up and moved not long after she went missing? I mean, the neighbor who kept that vital detail about her getting into the red convertible could have had a guilty conscience because they were covering for someone or they were somehow involved. Either way, I don't get how you hold on to information for that long and rationalize it by saying, well, I thought you knew. I believe Melody was lured out of the apartment the night she went missing. Maybe she knew someone or other people in the building and they made plans to hang out that night. Maybe the friend she was visiting and the boy that also lived there knew more than what they told the police. They were kids and they were probably scared to tell the truth. I just don't get how no one heard or saw her leave if she was staying in a building with high crime. I can't imagine it's the most peaceful place to rest at night. Also, the fact that she took the wrong jacket makes me think that she got up in a rush or was excited and grabbed the first jacket she saw, or maybe she didn't see it or just reached for whatever was there. Either way, she left her possessions behind, and to me, that means she had every intention of coming back. Or maybe she didn't leave on her own free will and was given whatever jacket was nearby. I truly hope that there are new developments in these cases and that they will eventually be solved. 
But as I mentioned earlier in this episode, maybe someone listening knows something, and if they do, please contact either the Baltimore police in either Toya or Melody's cases or Frederick police in Tiffany's case. Each girl has a name as profile and the regional program specialist, Catherine Pope, is assigned to all three. You can contact her at 817-879-9357 if you have any information regarding any of these three cases. Thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of NTCF Podcast. NTCF is available on all major streaming platforms. Please be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening on. Also, if you want to share your thoughts and opinions about each of these cases, you can connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at NTCF Podcast. I'll be back next week with a new crime file. Until then, goodbye for now.